Welcome to the Driving Change Podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network, where we live at the intersection of neuroscience and storytelling. If you love great stories and you love understanding the mindset it takes to be a world-class change agent, then join us as our fascinating guests from all walks of life unpack their unique journeys of perseverance and passion, of expertise and experience, and be inspired to use your own story to drive change. Well, welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, as usual, Jeff Bloomfield, and I've got a special guest today, uh, a guy I think you're really going to enjoy, Kevin Williams. If you don't know the name, you certainly will know him after I explain what he's done. He's the longtime band leader and funny guy with the Gaither Homecoming TV series and the Gaither Vocal Band in Nashville. He's now celebrating 30 years with the Gaithers, and he looks like he's 30 years old, so he must have started when he was three. But Kevin also co-hosts Bill Gaither's Homecoming radio show, which is on over 3,500 radio stations around the country. He's been playing guitar since he was about uh, six months old, I think. He's done recording sessions for so many popular artists that you would know. He's been doing recording, producing, as well as he's an on-demand performer and speaker from the Sydney Opera House in Australia to the prestigious Kennedy Center in D.C. to Carnegie Hall. You want to know how to find ask directions to Carnegie Hall? Well, the answer is not practice. It's Ask Kevin because he's been there in New York City, and he's thrilling audiences with his unique instrumental style and his quick wit. Well, we're going to ask you to thrill our audience with more of your quick wit than your instrumental style because, you know, we don't, we're not plugged in for the guitar here. So I can't wait for you to meet Kevin and the, unpack his story with him and the, some of the inspiration that he's doing right now um, in his life, in the life of others, in his charity, and lots of things he's doing down in Nashville in this season. Kevin, welcome to the Driving Change Podcast. I have been waiting for years to get on this podcast. <laughs> I just sit by the computer and wait for the call. And so fi- thank you, Jesus, for this call. So, yeah. Today's the day. I'm glad to be with you, Jeff. I have so much respect for you and the work you're doing. And uh, so it's a true honor for me. Well, our audience knows that I'm a musician wannabe and, um, you know, I still play left-handed guitar. That's me. I'm, you know, I'm a left-handed guitarist. I love when I get musicians on here uh, because there's something unique about music and creativity. And when you have someone who's a great communicator the way you are, not just musically and instrumentally, but also uh, verbally, it's just, I, I'm always, I always admire folks like you and the, and the accomplished career that you've had. So can't wait to share your story with our audience today. Well, you lefties are special. My dad was a lefty, you know, and, and probably the most creative person I ever met in my life. And uh, so so you guys look at the world a little differently, you know, so uh, much respect for the left-handed approach there. Yeah, that's great. Well, uh, as I warned you in the pre-show, we always start every guest off with the same question. The audience, they're on pins and needles waiting to hear the Kevin Williams origin story. So take us all the way back and share that background story with us and who had the big influence on your life and how you formed some of those early beliefs that led you to be the juggernaut of influence that you are today. Juggernaut. I, I can't tell you the last time I've been referred to as a juggernaut. Thank you for that. Uh, no, I, I'm from uh, rural Kentucky. I was born in Louisville. Uh, lived there for about a year and then uh, we moved to uh, Eastern Kentucky for a time, and then settled in, uh, I sound like a, a pilgrim, we settled, um, in South Central Kentucky by the time I was six years old, a uh, beautiful town of 2,500 people, Russell Springs, Kentucky. It's my hometown. I'm still back there uh, very frequently for some work that I do there. 
uh, with kids and that kind of thing. But um, uh, started first grade there and uh, and lived there till I moved to Nashville. And it was a beautiful place to grow up. Um, my dad was in the Navy for about five years. He got out. Uh, they had me. He went right back in for another five years. So uh, that that was, uh, uh, you know, an interesting way to grow up with a, with a dad. We lived in Norfolk, Virginia, where he was stationed uh, for a time there. So um, got to see some of that early on. I thought my dad was the greatest man that ever lived, you know, and he he was probably only about five foot six and uh, tallest man I ever I ever knew. Uh so by the time I'm six years old, we're, we're in uh, this beautiful rural area of Kentucky that's situated on Lake Cumberland, a uh, tourist area there. And uh, my mom was getting me in church. We grew up in a, uh, I grew up in a small Pentecostal church. I have no siblings, uh, so, so that explains a lot probably. But, but um, uh, mom wanted me in church, and so I was in church literally three, four times a week every time the doors were open, you know. And uh, dad worked a factory job. Uh, uh, and then mom was a clerk in a store, uh, both of them probably making minimum wage or my dad made slightly above maybe. And um, <clears throat> so we didn't have anything. We, we, uh, when I was six years old, we were in a two room house that had been a converted little um, like, like, a you know, ice cream uh, uh, shop kind of thing. So um, uh, moved into a mobile home after that, lived in a trailer park my whole life uh, from there on out. and. Um, so, uh, you know, poverty was, was certainly handed to me. I remember when the lunch forms came home in the sixth grade, by that time I knew what my mom and dad made and I added it up and I was in this column that said poverty and I'd never seen that word applied to me. Poverty was always somebody else, but I'd been in this my whole life and didn't know it. Now I was very fortunate. I'm not trying to paint this as bleak because I had two parents in the home and they were hardworking parents and they cared about me and loved me and showed me that. So uh, I was, I was by far rich, you know, uh, but I was in that poverty column. So, um, I think that did a number on me, uh, early on, you know, thinking you're different and, and, and that you have something else to overcome. Um, so, um, found a real home. I, I was not good in athletics. I was not, uh, um, you know, any of the things that boys do, um, you know, I was horrible at baseball and all that stuff. Um, I, I was dragging a guitar around from the time I was in diapers, just didn't know what to do with it. And I was fascinated by, uh, the music I was finding not only on the radio, all, they, they would play the radio for me to go to sleep, you know? And so, so I'd go to sleep to everything from Motown to, um, just pop records back then. But, um, the stuff I was seeing on TV was the Johnny Cash show and Glenn Campbell and even Hee Haw, you know, uh, those kind of things. And then I was fascinated by funny people. Uh, I was watching the Smothers Brothers and uh, uh, later on those Dean Martin roasts I thought were brilliant, you know, and all these great comics. And, and my hero was Johnny Carson. Uh, you know, I thought he was absolutely the best communicator I had ever seen. Um, a lot of sensibility about him. You know, I, I knew at an early age, he was a mature communicator. He, he could, uh, get the guest to say what he was thinking in his mind. That was, that was strange to me. And I was also, here's the other part of this eclectic, uh, thing. I was into magic as a kid. Uh, so, so I've always had this performer side to me and this production side, the, the, the studio, put it together, produce, create ideas side, but then the, get out in front of people and, and change their lives, make them smile, make them laugh, you know, all that. Well, I loved uh, from age nine, uh, magic. My cousin Jack turned me on to that. And so, 
Uh, I was I was into magicians like Mark Wilson, Doug Henning. You remember this guy? You oh, yeah. You know? oh, yeah. Okay. Doug Henning was a guy. And then uh, uh, there was even a series with Bill Bixby called The Magician back in the late 70s, you know, early 80s. Um, that's that part where he kept turning green, right? He was. Yeah, that's a different series, but yes. Oh, that's a different series. Yeah, that's okay. So uh, anyway, all of that stuff was just intriguing me. And I was – I try to find myself in all of that. Church was very important to me, my faith, and, and fell in love with Jesus Christ in an early age. And and uh, I've uh, veered from the path so many times, you know, but he's always been faithful and, and, and uh, had his hand on me. So that was important to me to share my faith. By the time I'm, um, and, and I got good grades, I was, I was really good in school. That came easy to me. Uh, it wasn't that I cared about it so much. I don't think it just came easy. It was one of those things. So, um, I was no trouble in school. You, you would think the class clown would be the troublemaker. And I really wasn't. It was actually pretty quiet in school. And then, uh, by the time I'm 16, uh, 14, I guess, 14, I'm playing, uh, in gospel groups and with any artist I could, I played country music on Friday nights and gospel music on Saturday night, you, you know, is uh, anywhere I could play, uh, fell in love with jazz music and classical music and every, anything I could get my hands on. I was just, uh, devouring it. And, um, uh, so I've literally been on a bus since I was 14, uh, on the weekends. I, I start traveling with a group from Kentucky called the rock of ages quartet. And these were guys that just loved to sing. And they had a guitar player, electric guitar player, that I thought was amazing. His name was Delno Roy, and he had big sideburns, wore zip-up boots, man. And I thought, yeah, I want to be that when I grow up, you know. And uh, so all of that was making a huge impact uh, on me. And I could see the, the the faces of the people we would sing to, um, you know, they, they were visibly different because they were immersing themselves uh, in the message or maybe even in the way it was sung, but uh, something was affecting them. And I think that got a hold of me. And uh, then I'd pretty much given up magic by the time I was 16 because you can get girls easier with guitars than you can with a, a wand, you know. So um, uh, anyway, that uh, that became my life. I drove to Nashville uh, when I was 16 years old, I drove down here. I I had met one guy, one guitar player from Nashville, and he played with a gospel group. And um, I met him when I was 14, and he gave me his phone number, and he said, uh, hey, if you ever get to Nashville, look me up, you know. So I turned 16 on a Thursday, got my driver's license that same day, and on Monday, I drove to Nashville, which is about three hours away. And um my mom and dad were scared to death. You know, I'd never been on a four lane highway. I'd, I'd never been on interstate or anything, uh, driving. So, um, I drive down there. I go to a phone booth for, for you who are of the younger generation. That was a big booth with the, and, um, and I call this guy and, and, uh, of course he doesn't remember me. He's just a nice guy, you know? And he said, Oh, okay. Well, yeah, well, uh, glad you're in town. You know, he said, I'm going to a recording session tonight. Uh, do you want to go? And I said, yeah. And, um, he, I meet him, he drives me in a Buick Impala, a Chevy Impala to, to, uh, this recording session in Brentwood, Tennessee, a suburb of Nashville at Goldmine Studios. And, uh, and overdubbing that night playing guitar was Dan Huff. Okay. Dan Huff is a major producer in Los Angeles and Nashville these days and produced everybody from Faith Hill on. He's playing guitar in that session that night. And I fell in love with all of that. And I knew that there were these recording session guys. 
that played on all of the records. Uh, it, it was different than the guys you would see in the road bands that would travel with the artists. These were guys that went from session to session to session. They knew how to play this style on one record, another style on another record. They were fast. They could read charts. They were great creatives. And it was a different um, thing. You know, you rarely saw these guys. But back then, I would read all the album covers and read the, the credits. And so I knew all the, the guitarists, and I wanted to be that. And uh, so, so I left Nashville that night about three in the morning, I think. I got home at sunrise. And uh, I knew, I knew a direction for my life. I, I had some identity, uh, uh, some some kind of idea of who I was to be. And uh, that was at sixteen. And of course, I moved to Nashville when I was twenty-two. So um, all those years were were the connecting the dots years, and they were important. And uh, uh, moved down here and starved for a year, and then began to get some work as a session player. I was always traveling with groups on the weekends, and groups like the Blackwoods and Wendy Bagwell and the Sunlighters. Who he was a great comedian. Wendy was um, had a big uh, million-selling record back in the seventies. So. Um, I was enjoying the journey, you know, and then uh, met Mr. Gaither in uh, 91, I guess. And I, I met him through the studio scene and, and was the guitar player on something he was producing. And then a year later, I got a call from his office saying, do you want to go on the road with the Gaithers? And, uh, and that began a 30-year relationship on a handshake, really. Um, just wow. a, a wonderful relationship and, and a great legacy that's poured into me. Um, so that's sort of... The, the encapsulated version, and especially the music side. Uh, one other thing that affected me um, uh, as much or, or more than my dad even was uh, I met Zig Ziglar when I was 19 years old. Uh, and, and if you know that name, I don't have to explain anything. If you don't, he was uh, one of the, the foremost trainers and motivators, self-improvement. Uh, some would call him a guru. Uh, he, he was just a great teacher uh, back in the, in the seventies. And, and so I met him, uh, in about 84, I guess that was, uh, and I was working for a radio station. I was, I was on air talent and, uh, doing news and you do everything in small market radio, you know, and I figured out I could sell advertising on the side and make a little extra money. You know, I had a commission rate there and uh, I was all about that. So, um, I began selling, uh, to these clients and, uh, not knowing what I was doing. I was just a good guy, but I had no skill in selling. And, um, and so my rate was not that good. And I knew that, and I didn't know why. And, um, uh, I thought I had a good product and I'm a good guy. It's, it's a fit, right? And everybody wanted to think about it. So, uh, uh, I, I found secrets of closing the sale. And then I found a live, uh, event that Zig was going to be hosting in Lexington, Kentucky, about two hours from where I live. And I went, took the day off work and uh, went up there, bought a couple of books. He signed them and uh, he shared his faith in the middle of that incredible uh, afternoon. It was, it was powerful. It changed my life. And uh, so I thought, okay, I want to be that when I grow up. You know, I was saying that about anybody that, that I saw that I thought, oh, that's, that's part of me, you know? And, um, then, uh, long story short, I got to, uh, I still have my See You at the Top book from Zig that he signed and my ticket that I used for a bookmark in there, you know. Um, about 25 years later, I got to introduce him on our stage in wow. front of thousands of people, hold up my little See You at the Top book and, uh, and say, this man impacted my life in a powerful way. 
um, and uh, I'm forever grateful. So um, those things are all part of me, and, uh, and and you know it's it's a little mixed up and jumbled at times. Some people wonder what side of me they're going to get when they're talking to me, but uh, but it's all me. And uh, and now I can give you another three hours on that same subject if you want, or, or but that's uh, that's pretty much the story. Well, what I love is I love hearing people's story, right? I love their journey. And I love seeing how their journey, everyone's is unique and it's theirs. And so it's impactful. It's important. And then I, I like to think through, I try to put myself in your shoes. So I'm back to that, that day in Nashville. Then you went back home and you're 16 and you, you, you think you might've found your calling, but you know, sometimes that, you know, the, the time from the promise to the payoff, as they say, right. In your case, it was six years before you'd gone back to Nashville. And I'm just curious, like, was there ever any, any waning in your mind that you were supposed to go? Yes. Or was it, was it just, uh, what, what, what took you so long? It was doubt every day. Uh, I'll I'll tell you why. Of course I'm in school at the time. I'm in high school, you know, so, um, I'm finishing out my, my junior and senior year of high school. Um, I, I, had electricity, a vocational industrial uh, thing there, like a technical school, and so so I I came out of that with an uh, electrician's uh, certificate that I can wire your house. You know, it won't it won't work. Is that when you switched to the electric guitar? Then yeah, exactly. <laughs> Figuring out where to plug that in, you know. Um, so so I was always a worker, and you know, doing all that and discovering all these things that I loved, and uh, that's almost a pitfall of somebody who has a brain like mine who loves a lot of things. Um, when, when you don't know truly your identity and your purpose, and, and I didn't at the time, I was suspecting a lot of things. Um, but, but when you're not locked in on that and zoned in on what, you know, that is, you, you, you kind of take a lot of different paths. So I'm grateful for the journey. Um, but in those years I was doubting it all the time and people were saying to me, you're great. You got what it takes to make it. You, you're talented. However, these people were not qualified to give me a, a judgment. They were well-meaning people who loved me and believed in me. Our moms are supposed to say that to us, Kevin. That's what they're <laughs> supposed to say. So I needed somebody who was qualified, somebody who was doing this professionally to to lock into me and say, yeah, you need to give up on this or you need, I needed something there. And then, um, then the stubborn side of me, I don't know if I'd have believed him anyway, but I believed um, in myself enough uh, to push through, you know, those doubts, at least from one day to the next. So, um, uh, I just began advancing that and God provided lots of opportunities. I began playing on some jingles and stuff for a little studio that was local there and, um, playing with other artists and, and, and just gaining experience, uh, as I went too. so that when, um, I did get an audition, I did get an opportunity, uh, in 87 to go out with the Blackwoods, uh, which was a, a legendary name, you know, um, that I, I didn't feel like I botched that up. I felt like I brought something to it and, and was fairly confident in what I was doing there. Um, so it takes years to develop that. And, and I didn't begrudge that process, but there were a lot of doubts along the way. Um, I, I wish I could say that I was determined from day one and I, I guess I was determined, but, um, you know, unless you have a process for looking at doubts and evaluating them and going, what is this really? Where's this coming from? And, and is this coming from me or is this coming from something somebody said? Right. Is this coming from what I assume their observation was? You know, there's just a lot of that kind of thing that I had to get past. And I'm a teenager, so it took a while. Well, I heard this recently that 
uh, someone I was watching said, the brain is not built for success. It's actually built for survival. And what it takes to be successful is actually counterproductive to our own biology in many ways. And you have to almost train your brain to be successful when it's really built for that survival mechanism. And one of the questions I have for folks like yourself is, I think Tony Robbins, I uh, heard him say one time that you know, most people are rewarded for in public what they've spent hours, days, months, years practicing in private. And I think someone can look at you on stage and listen to you, uh, you know, interacting with the Gaithers and how just smooth you are. And they can watch you play the guitar and just how incredible you are on it. And they think, well, he's just gifted. But he just has a natural gift. Give, give some encouragement and yet at the same time, a little bit of accountability, because I think sometimes people think, well, you're supposed to follow your gifting and your purpose. But I see so many people who don't actually practice and they think, well, God's just going to make me this, you know, Tony Robbins. I want to be a public speaker. Well, I'm just going to be Tony Robbins. I just got to keep speaking. Well, no, there's a craft involved to anything that we might look upon someone like you and go, oh, they're just naturally gifted on the stage. Could you speak to that a little bit and the work that you put in? I think you said it well. You know, I was I was practicing eight hours a day uh, when when I was a kid. I'm sitting in a room working on everything. I had a wonderful guitar teacher, and I should mention his name, Larry Beasley. He's trained more acoustic musicians in the state of Kentucky than anybody else. He's a, a bluegrass music legend, uh, a banjo player, played for Bill Monroe and all that. And um, he would give me assignments to do, and I just I just wanted you know I'm I'm coming at this already from a challenged place. Uh, and, and I'll get to the answer there. I hadn't forgot, but, but, but uh, <clears throat> I'm coming at this as an only child who has no music in my family. Okay. I had a grandfather that played a fiddle and he died when I was four. I never heard him play. So my mom and dad were non-musical people. I had nothing around me to inspire challenge. Um, I'm coming at this from poverty. I'm coming at this uh, with basically no one around, uh, to validate me in a qualified way. Okay. So, uh, none of that was important to me. Okay. The only, the, the thing that I thought I was supposed to be this, that's what's important to me. And I wish I could tell you why I knew that. And, and I truly believe that part was the calling. Uh, but there was a lot of practice that went into that every day. And I enjoyed that. I practiced till my fingers were bleeding and I, it didn't bother me. You know, I was just, I was in this to find out everything in that guitar I could find out, you know? And then there were long periods, like what I call my drought periods, where I didn't feel like I was learning anything. I was doing the same thing over and over and over again and not learning anything new. And I would almost, it was almost a love-hate relationship with a guitar. I would, I would look at it and go, why aren't you teaching me anything new, you know? And, uh, but it was, I think in those times, what I call the drought periods is where you develop a, if anybody says, I love your style, uh, and I still don't know what that is for me, but I think it was developed in those drought periods that this style or the, the, whatever I am comes out of doing something over and over again. Even when you don't think you're getting anywhere, you you're developing something that's beyond you. So, um, uh, I, I, I talk to a lot of people these days who want to follow their gifting. Maybe they're even at a, a place in their life where they they've had a dream that's been buried for a long time and they want to you know, kind of pursue that. Maybe they wanted to be a singer. Maybe they want to be whatever. Um, so uh, I always encourage following your dreams, man. But understand that uh, hard work is a part of of anything. And so if you're willing to commit 
um, and put the work in and, and not expect the doors to just open for you. Uh, you know, you, you, you got to knock on them. Sometimes you got to open them. Sometimes you got to break them down. Um, and, and I did everything wrong in the beginning. I moved to Nashville <clears throat> expecting everybody to call me. Okay. And book me on sessions. And I didn't have the money to get a phone. All right. I had no phone number for them to call me. How bright is that brain trust? Okay. So, uh, you, you know, here's a guy that succeeded, uh, basically because I did the hard work and, uh, and thank God there was some kind of gifting there that I could, you know, put into this and trade for dollars and that kind of thing. Um, and then, uh, my faith comes into play here too, where I, I say, uh, tr trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean to your own understanding and all your ways, uh, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. And my path needed some directing, uh, that I, I was poor on the path. Okay. Uh, so yeah, God followed through on all of that with me. Uh, but he saw this earnest kid who was really trying, you know, I, I know he just stood up there and went, okay, he's trying really hard. Let's help him, you know, uh, and, and thank God for the grace bones that he throws us, uh, from time to time. Uh, no, no question. That's awesome. Uh, and I love that. What, what I always try to encourage, I encourage my kids as well is, and I know in our culture today, it's getting harder and harder for the next generation to have the same perspective. And I'm sure every generation has felt the same way about the generation that's come up behind them, right? Um, when I hear someone say, well, that person's just a product of privilege. And that word, it grates on me because I was raised with not much either like yourself. And I say, well, I, I think you might want to look a little deeper and see if maybe they aren't a product of practice that then ends up showing up today to, to you that look like privilege. And now, our, our, you know, you get, you get where we're going with this, right? So, some, some, some people do have a lot more advan strategic advantages in life because of where they come from and where they are and their parents. Somebody has to make a decision in a family somewhere to drop a pebble in the, in the pond and create a ripple effect. And we hope that we do that for our kids and the next generation, next generation. But I always like to look at folks and say, what, you know, what's your mindset right now? Beautiful. I, I, was, I was going there. That is so funny. Yeah. Yeah, please go ahead. Well, so everybody told me now, you know, I, I grew up in, in, in this beautiful rural area with a lot of well-meaning people that cared about me. However, there was a lot of small thinking uh, around me and that's not relegated to rural areas. Okay. Uh, but I, I just, I just had these people who would say these viciously negative things to me, although they were meaning it for my well-being. Um, I had one guy that said, don't move to Nashville. You, you, it's too competitive, man. You, you just get eaten up down here, you know? And, and this guy truly loved me. And, and then another guy said, well, go do what you got to do and get on back. That's the way everybody does, you know? <laughs> okay, great. And then the one I heard probably the most was, well, remember, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Well, I didn't know anybody. <laughs> I knew I knew one guy and I'd already phoned a friend, you know, when I was 16, right? So um so I think the thing that made me different was my mindset. And uh and I get to talk to young people about that today. Um you can work on your skill set and 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 make that the highest it can be because that's critically important. But when you change your mindset, you change everything. Everything changes with mindset. And um, thank God I found this primarily through my dad. And I began to read, you know, Norman Vincent Peale and, and, and some of these guys at an early age. Um, I remember reading uh, William James, you know, as a man thinketh. Um, and I'm probably, you know, 18. But, um, but when I found Zig at 19, that 
that rocked my world because number one, I had self-esteem issues uh, because of all the things I've mentioned. So uh, a lot of this is about uh, confidence and, and a secure self-esteem, being able to see me as God sees me, see me in this perfect potential, you know, that I can get to. It is achievable, okay? But I got to think differently to get there. So um, uh, I think I had that edge. I really do. Um, that is the thing that says, don't be embarrassed to call a guy that you met two years ago in passing. You know, that's the thing that says, I bet you can drive on an interstate the day you get your license. You know, that kind of, um, I look back now and I go, was I stupid or was I courageous or whatever? But, but the mindset pushes you over the hurdle. And, uh, so, so in, in kids today, you know, I have a charity back in my hometown, uh, called Kevin's kids. We formed it in 2014, uh, to benefit kids like I was and just get in their life with meeting some needs. Um, I, I, when I was six years old, I got a corduroy coat for Christmas, uh, brown corduroy had the hood, had the zip the, like you could unzip the hood off. I just thought, wow, that's, you know, and, um, and it got quite cold in the, in the wintertime there. Uh, and I didn't know till I was in my forties, I was mentioning that to my mom. I said, do you remember that coat that I had? And she said, yeah, we didn't get you that coat. And I said, yeah, you did. It was Christmas. She said, well, our neighbors got you that coat. We couldn't afford the coat. And man, that hit me like a ton of bricks. I had no idea that right. that was, you know, something as simple as a coat. I don't know if that was 20 bucks back then, 25 bucks. I don't know. Um, it was more than they had. And, and yet it was provided for me. So I formed this charity to be able to get into kids' lives with something like shoes or a coat or a pair of glasses or clothing items, hygiene items, anything we could to get in their lives. And then once we're in their lives, say, now. With a proper mindset, you can rock this world with who you are, okay? Who you were created to be. And, and, um, and, and we just take that step by step with these kids and plant seeds. Uh, this past year, we started doing scholarships. We've done that for two years now. So we're, it's called the Kevin Williams Believe Scholarship. And we're able to, to get into kids' lives at a different level there uh, going into college. You know? So um, all these things are dream come true for me. Initially, because of uh, what I would just say, mindset coupled with grace, okay, um, and uh, and I was able to think differently. I'm not saying I was smarter. I'm not saying I was anything, but I was given some tools on how to think. Um, things that say, um, believe in yourself. You know, even when everybody else doesn't believe, everybody, all this negative stuff is coming at you. Believe in yourself, because I didn't ha have anybody to take me in front of a producer and say, listen to this guy or uh, to take me to an artist or anything. Um, but I thought, well, if I just walk forward, the way will open up. I was that naive. And, and it's a beauty in that, I think, because I firmly planted in that take no thought for tomorrow scripture and in the, he will direct your path thing. I just bought into that all the way. And he was faithful to that. So um, I know my faith comes out strong when, I, when I'm talking about this, but uh, I think it's such a critical part too. This is all about belief. We know the power of belief and you could talk about the placebo effect and, you know, just pure belief, what that is. And when you anchor pure belief in something that never changes, uh, you're going to rock the world. 
Yeah, we say that around here a lot, that the uh, the intensity of one's beliefs tends to drive the consistency of one's behaviors. And that that's that mindset you're talking about. And it, and it, it isn't this, I just believe that, yes, I think there's a, Carol Dweck did a bunch of research on a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset. And, and some people are more inclined naturally through the genetics to be more growth mindset oriented and others are a little bit more fixed mindset oriented. But I believe that, and we've proven it through neuroplasticity, that you can change your brain. You can change what you think. You can change your thoughts. And your, shot, your thoughts start to change your beliefs, and your beliefs then lead to new behaviors, which then you can do anything. And I think that you, what, what I love about your story is you didn't, you didn't just sit around and wait, though, for doors to open. You took initiative. And so many people, I think, are afraid to take initiative because either the voices in the neighborhood are telling them that they're, they shouldn't do something out of the fear from their own junk and their own brain trunk. You know, you just like you going to see Zig in Lexington, like you took the initiative to go seek out someone who you didn't even know whether he's going to add any value to you or not. You'd read a book and you thought, well, this guy, maybe he'll add some value to you. And turned out he was, it was instrumental in putting you one more step on the path. And that's what I love. It's just like this conversation you and I are having. I know historically now that someone's going to listen to this show, this specific episode, and they're going to hear this conversation and it's going to motivate them to go, man, I was in such a funk. I was stuck. And then listen to those two knuckleheads talk about this. I don't think I've taken enough initiative. I've been, I've been living in a place of fear and they're going to take another step in the right direction. That's what I think really surrounding yourself with people. You don't have to surround yourself with everybody who thinks like you think, but you do have to surround yourself with people who actually motivate and inspire you to believe that you can do, you can do more, right? Absolutely. And, and the confidence comes, um, as you do this, as you do exactly what we're talking about. Um, because I was scared to death the whole time I'm, I'm moving forward. I was not going to move backward. Uh, sometimes it looks like, you, you know, like I had to move home for three months because I starved and then I, you know, paid off my debts and I moved back here. That looks like you're moving backward. I knew I was coming here. I, that was just a move to pay off debts. And, you know, so, so here again, mindset, despite what it looks like, but my knees are still knocking. Anytime right. I played in front of somebody powerful like that, I, yeah, my knees were knocking, man. And uh, the first Gaither date that I did in, in December of 92, um, we were in at Chicago, uh, at Moody Broadcasting in Chicago. <laughs> and this is my trial weekend, right? They call and they say, hey, we want you to come out with us and you don't have to audition. Mr. Gaither's heard you play. Just come out and see if you like us. We like you. And I said, yeah, you're going to send me the material? And they said, yeah. And they sent me some songs, and I learned the songs. And I went up for a 30-minute meeting with um, the CEO of the company at the time, kind of told me how the program was going to run. And that was it. I didn't get a run-through with the guys. You, I mean, I went on stage with these guys and uh, scared to death. So Chicago, uh, Moody Broadcasting, we're live on the radio around the world, and there's 5,000 people in the room, and that was the biggest crowd I'd ever played for, ever, by a zero. That was probably the biggest crowd I'd ever played for. And um, uh, I played so badly, Jeff. I mean, <laughs> if, if, if you could fail an audition, I failed it every which way I failed it that night. And, um, and, and at one point, there was a humor element of it. I, I played so badly and like my, my posture even reflected it. You know, I was just defeated. <laughs> and, um, Mr. Gaither said something to me on stage and I said something funny and the crowd laughed. And, and I think he saw 
aha, you know, in that. But for me, it was just something that came out. And he came around, he put his hands on, on my shoulders and he said, you're going to work out. This is going to be good. And I hear again, I'm thankful for grace, you know, because right. I botched that. I, if, if you're evaluating, I didn't get above a five in any column, but I showed up and, 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 you know, I thank God there had been seeds planted before that. And, and so everything came together in a beautiful way that night. Um, feel the fear and move through it move on. You know, uh, Will Smith said, we heard this quote this past weekend, that every great thing in life lies just on the other side of fear. I, I love that. And I think, I mean, I try to encourage my kids that, that, that fear, it can be a fuel, but it's also, it's many times it's from the enemy. It's there to prevent you from walking further into your purpose. And if you allow it to, it will. And uh, that that's, Th those are the stories I love to hear. And you said something in there really subtly. I want to bring it out before we start to land the plane here. It was interesting in your, in your original story, you didn't mention that you got yourself stuck in a little bit of debt and had to move back home for three months to pay off your debts to move back. See how I want the audience not to miss that. You didn't share that as part of your story, not because you're ashamed of it or you're embarrassed by it. It just isn't your mindset. It wasn't a part of that. That was just part of that journey. But on the outside looking in, I want folks to hear that. That's a normal thing. Like when you come up against those things, successful people don't just stop. They don't quit. They just adapt, overcome, and then get right back on purpose. And that's exactly what you did. And I hope people heard that. I hope they caught that because that's important. You know, typical starving artist kind of scenario there. Um, for that first six months, I didn't even have a bed. Uh, I had a, a like a, a mattress, you know, on the floor there. And uh, so my my dad hauled me home, hauled some of my stuff home uh, to Kentucky after that. But uh, what little bit of furniture I had, I put in storage. And I got a three-month contract on the storage room. So what's that tell you about mindset? You know, <laughs> anybody would have looked at this and gone, you're crazy, man. You failed. Just come home, you know? But, um, I, to me, I was like, yeah, I'm six months on the journey. You know, <laughs> right. So I know that seems a little radical and crazy sometimes, but sometimes you got to be radical and crazy to move forward and get past your doubts and your negativity that keep, you know, popping up the, the, the line of stuff that you've been fed, uh, from well-meaning people sometimes. So, uh, I, I kept moving ahead. Yeah, this next generation now, and even us, we're not immune to this, right? We're getting we're getting so much noise from so many more places with social media and with the media in general. So you can easily lose your identity so much faster. You know, when, when we were growing up, you had just those well-intentioned or, or not so well-intentioned neighbors or relatives. And that was, a, that was a big part of your identity was your school, the school kids, your teachers, and the people in your community. Now you've got a global millions of people speaking lies to people and telling them this is who they are, who they're not. And so I, I, I shudder to think what I would probably be if I had to invite, operate in today's world of, of noise around that. You, you know, and I was fortunate to have a dad who said, you know, I think it's the dad's job uh, to, to hand an identity uh, to, to the child and point them. Um, you, you know, the Bible talks about your quiver being full of arrows. Those arrows are your children. And, and, and it's a father's job to point those arrows. Uh, a lot of times the father's not in the home now, you know, kids don't have that, uh, that privilege. And so um, I think it falls on a lot of us uh, to, to assume the greater role of pointing a generation 
Um, and, and, and that's a great responsibility, you know. Uh, but I was privileged to have a dad who didn't understand anything about what I was wanting to accomplish in life. He didn't know what a session musician was. He didn't know about reading a chart. He didn't know all the gospel music heroes that I had. He didn't know any of them. He'd never listened to that music. He didn't know any of that. He didn't know how important that was to me. Uh, but he was on my team. He was committed to me. And he said, I don't, I don't know what you want to be, but whatever it is, it's going to be great. And I'm here to help you. And I had that unconditional promise, you know, that love. And that's unusual. Um, and my mom was the stable one, the methodical one. She was at work 15 minutes early, stayed 15 minutes late every day. Um, she was the consistent, you know, uh, one where dad was a little more like me. He was all over the map. But um, uh but dad was a higher thinker in that way. And, and uh, I think he saw that there was some kind of explosion that was going to happen in me. And he didn't know exactly what that was, but he was committed to it. That's valuable in this day and time, man. And I, th I think that that is on us to influence the generation uh, with that truth. Yeah, I totally agree. We could go on a whole nother episode around the importance of, of father figures in our culture and the, the, the missing, I think it's the missing ingredient that's happening today. So I loved your comment about now there's a, those of us who are fathers who, who have that, we got to speak it to more than just our kids. We got, we got to speak it to those who, who don't have them in their lives. So that's, it's well said, which kind of is a nice bridge as we close out again. I want to point people back to the great work you're doing with Kevin's kids. You mentioned it briefly, but that's another way of doing that, right? That's an extension of speaking as a father figure into the lives of these kids who may not have sometimes even their basic necessities met and providing for them in such a way and then moving all the way through and providing scholarships. So tell people again where they can find out more information about how they can either contribute to it or be a part of it. Yeah, we've done this at a real grassroots level and it's the only county in Kentucky out of 120 counties that's doing anything like this. Um, and uh, so at kevinwilliamsmusic.com, you're going to see uh, some blurbs about that from time to time. We're still trying to um, get a, a, a like a dedicated website for that. It, it just it began so esoterically. Um, really sweet beginnings. And now uh, we're up to, uh, I think, you know, almost half a million dollars that's been raised uh, wow. for kids in this rural area uh, for simply, you know, hygiene items, clothing items, uh, glasses. Uh, we've been able to do some dental uh, stuff and help with all kinds of other needs. Uh, the big responsibility here was, you know, we wanted to get in their lives with this and, and right. say, now that we're in your life and we show you that we care, you know, by literally by a pair of shoes, because uh, a lot of them, they're wearing shoes that are three sizes too small and the foot's coming through the bottom, you know. So we have uh, people in the schools that are our resource managers that, that look for this kind of thing. And they say, hey, come in my office here. And they outfit them and they say, okay, I, and I know you've been wearing the same shirt for two days. So here's, here's a shirt, you know, and, and, uh, just want you to know we care and we got your back. Your your opinion matters to us. And when you have something to say, we want to hear that. And we're going to talk about how to voice your opinion in a very respectful way so that you will be heard. And we're just teaching them basic qualities that have been sort of skipped over in the last generation or two. The things that bug you about today's generation. We're just trying to uh, uh, plant some of those seeds there in a positive way. And uh, the result of that has been that we, we have kids uh, who turn to these resource managers then and they say, uh, you, you know, they, they look at them as a parent figure 
And so they take the, the responsibility teaching that they're giving them. And they, uh, even the young boys, we're teaching them how to be a gentleman, you know, how to open a door for somebody. I mean, something like that, you know. So uh, when you're able to get in their lives and you're able to give them some truth and hopefully give them a winning mindset, something that says uh, uh, when the doubts come, here's a tool to help you override these doubts and move through them, okay? Uh, here's a way to... Uh, hear what everybody says and yet believe your your truth that is inside you and move through that so that if this is all negative out here it's just going to do nothing but push you forward so uh, that's what kevin's kids is all about and we're able to do some school scholarships now we uh just this year did six scholarships called the kevin williams believe scholarship and so all this is donated funding. And if you'd like to be a part of that, uh, email me through the website or get in touch with me. But it's, uh, it's some exciting things going on. Proud of uh, all the people that work on this team, too. That's so good. And you're also involved with uh, another guest of ours and friend of the family, Andy, Andy Andrews and his site, Wisdom Harbor. You're a teacher on there as well, aren't you? Teaching... Yeah, so uh, I, I teach the heart mender. He, he has uh, life coaches that teach um, several of his books. And The Heart Mender was an amazing book. I think it's the best book he's ever written. Uh, and the underlying principles of forgiveness and releasing bitterness and, and resentment, those kind of things. Because, Jeff, if you're going to move forward in life, you got to move at a high rate of speed, an accelerated path. And you can't do that if you're dragging around all this baggage because uh, you're still dealing with yesterday. Let that stuff go and move forward. Now, easier said than done sometimes, but we, we, we have a great story in the heart mender that helps us through that. So yeah, excited about the work I'm doing there. And, uh, Andy's a good friend. I met him when he was doing comedy. Uh, he was hosting Nashville now back years ago. Uh, one night I met him backstage. He's been a good friend down through the years. And we also share, uh, a same hobby. Uh, I'm, I'm the biggest Andy Griffith show fan uh, that you will ever meet. And we both collect memorabilia from the show. So I have some, you know, things about the show, but I actually have a lot of the props that were used in the show. I have a dish from Aunt B's cupboard and I have a book from Helen Crump's classroom and I have a telephone that was in one of the scenes and that kind of thing. So Andy has some of that stuff that we love to go back and forth on who's got what, you know. That's awesome. Well, another great example for those listening, just surround yourself with with people that are out trying to make a difference and you're going to find yourself trying to make a difference. That's just the the way life goes, right? And are you living your life in such a way that someday somebody will put you in their story as their sage who had that kind of an impact? And you're doing that for so many people. Uh, it's been an honor to have you on. I'd love to have you back on maybe again in the fall. We'll talk more. I didn't get, even get to dive into some of the experiences on the road and on the stage with the Gaithers. And there's so much there I'd like to go into, but I wanted people to kind of get to know the heart and soul of Kevin in this first episode, what you're all about, where you come from. And I think we've accomplished that. So um, anything, any closing points of, of wisdom you'd like to leave the audience with? I'm just honored to be with you. And, and uh, I, I love what you're teaching and, and uh, how you convey it as well. Uh, you, you know, that, that belief drives behavior. That's just a, uh, that's a fundamental and, uh, and yet you're teaching it in a new, fresh way. And, and with uh, um, information that you've learned firsthand uh, I love your stories. And so thanks for having me on. Just honored. And, and our friend, uh, Matt Dentino is, uh, such a dear friend to me. And so, uh, a great part of your team, uh, value him as well. Pleasure has been all ours. We'll have you on again soon. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Jeff.
Do you love news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We We out. out.